I preached my first sermon uh, back in 1991 uh, to two youth students. It was a low attendance day for a youth group. There were two students, and I preached in John 11. Starting around 94, 95, I, be, I began preaching almost every week. So over uh, 15 years of preaching. And uh, I'm still awed by the mystery and the adventure of preaching. Uh, I still don't understand fully the complex dynamics that work when the Word of God is preached. Um, this was brought home to me a few weeks ago. Um, right before Christmas, around that time, our family experienced a, a Category 5 hurricane storm in our home when uh, our family came down with a cold, came down with a cold or a flu. You know, when if I get sick with a flu, it gets easier for Seren because uh, I, I, I'm, I'm quarantined in my room and I make a less of a mess around the house. So the household is a little smoother when I'm sick. But if Serin gets sick, then the whole household just breaks down. It's a disaster area and it's just crazy. And uh, it, was a, it was a Category 5 because for the first time in, in our memory, all of us got sick. You know, Serin and I and the children. And so that Sunday, my goal was just to get through preaching. I was miserable. I was groggy. You know, that commercial that Joe talks about with the whole head. It's like a one big nose. That's that's how I felt that morning. And I went against my better judgment that morning, and I took, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, drugs, you know, legal drugs, <laughs> over-the-counter drugs that morning. And so I was groggy. I couldn't think straight. There was a fog here in the pulpit. There's a fog here in the pulpit, and there's definitely a fog here out there in the congregation. And, uh, man, I just felt pretty bad after the services. Uh, you know, I know many of you don't follow the Lakers, and I'm going to just keep pounding that hammer until you guys convert. But uh, a few games ago, Derek Fisher shot one for ten in the game. All right, he threw up ten bricks or nine bricks and made one shot. He must have felt miserable in the locker room after that game. Well, that's how I felt. I felt like I went one for ten. And uh, but a few weeks later, some of the brothers came up to me and said that they were so blessed by that particular sermon. And one guy even said that was the best message he heard all last year. And I said to him, you're taking drugs too, huh? <laughs> yeah, what are you taking? But he, <laughs> they were recounting to me like, specific points, illustrations from that very sermon. And they were so impacted and blessed. And so, you know, it, that's how... God works in spite of us, and the dynamics of spiritual work, ministry, studying the Bible is so um, above and beyond us. God works in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in the crevices of our being. That's beyond human comprehension, and we can't really quantify and understand what God is doing, but we see the wind blows where it will. We see the effects of the Spirit moving, and we rejoice. Um, I tell you this, because even last week's sermon was such a a profound study for all of us. So many of you have came, come to me this week. I got emails. And I, I think when when you speak on family and sin and forgiveness, it affects everyone. There's no one here who is not un, who's unaffected by sin and family and forgiveness. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, that doesn't resonate with me at all. Every single one of us, we can definitely understand uh, the struggles and difficulties in, in, in with those issues in our families. And and uh, so many of you are, are encouraged and blessed and 
and challenged. And we truly thank God for that. Uh, you know, I, one one brother emailed me, and you know, he he was, uh, you know, one of my weaknesses in life is math. You know, I, I thought by going the pastoral route, I would I could avoid math without a problem. But you know, like my freshman year, my first semester. My, my grades were four A's and a D, and the D was in algebra, and I could never understand algebra. I would study the homework tests, class, you know, the problems. The, t- the test was always different. How come the problems weren't the same? So I could never get the quizzes or tests right. So I thought by going the pastoral route, route I could avoid math, but, you know, last week, there was that whole denarii, 100 denarii, 100 talents, and, you know, I didn't really, I didn't want to do calculations in the middle of my sermon prep. So I just said an arbitrary number, you know, a million, do- million dollars and fifty dollars. And a brother wrote me this week and he said, "Hey James, thanks for the message on Sunday. Already by Monday, I witnessed uh, four church restorations, relationship-wise, reconciliations, people restoring, being restored, and being united. It was definitely a much-needed teaching. And he wanted to kind of do the math for me, and it was very helpful. He was saying." One denarii is one day's wage. And so one day's wage, today's figures, minimum wage is 8000 an hour. One day's wage is $64. You work eight hours. So a hundred denarii is $6,400. And hundred talents is equivalent to $7.68 billion. So what the first servant owed the master was a hyperbolic number. billion, and he was forgiven for that. But what the second servant was owed wasn't $50. It wasn't a parking ticket. That's why I should have done my math. I should have calculated these numbers. It was $6,400, which is a significant amount. That's important because it helps us to understand when people sin against us, family, friends, strangers, it is sin. It hurts. It is painful. It, it, it does offend. It does discourage us. It's not fifty. It's sixty-four hundred dollars. It is a significant amount, and yet, when we look at the cross and remember that we are forgiven of seven point six eight billion dollars, we see it in its right perspective. So it highlights. It doesn't minimize sins done against us. Right? It is. A sin. It is, it is painful, and yet all the more highlights what forgiveness we received in Christ. I wanted to share that with you. You know, I thank the brother for doing math for me and bless me. I wanted to share that with you. Well, now we're uh, back to our study in Second Timothy chapter three. Um, we're going to study verses uh, ten through fourteen. Even then, we're not going to get to the whole whole section, but we want to read together. The whole chapter so that we might study the parts in a right context with a right understanding. So we're going to study just verses 10 through 14, but read the whole chapter. We don't do this often, but uh, let's do it this morning. Let's stand together and um, read Second Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days... There will come times of difficulty where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Please be seated. <coughs> now we need to uh, be mindful of the historical setting in which this letter was written. Uh, we had it's been a few weeks since we last studied Second Timothy. So by way of reminder, this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. It was intended for public reading. Paul knew that and wanted Timothy to read this to the church at Ephesus and to for other Christians to read it as well. But all the use here, second person singular, are second person singular. They're written and, and speaking to Timothy personally. It is an intimate letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, and it's his last letter. You know, we we've said this before several times. Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are popularly called the prison epistles, but that's a mislabel. When Paul wrote those epistles, he wasn't in prison, he was in house arrest. He was confined, but just to his home, a regular residence. But here in 2 Timothy, this is a real prison epistle. Paul is in a dungeon, he's chained to the wall as a criminal, and he's writing to Timothy, and he knows that this will be his last letter to his son in the faith. In the very next chapter, he, he speaks of, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I'm ready to meet the Lord. Uh, he understands that his leg of the race is, is done. This is the last round. His life is coming to an end. And he knows that martyrdom is soon awaiting him. And he's writing to his son of the faith for the very last time. And Timothy is, um, he's not like Paul. You know, Paul's a lion of the faith. You know, Timothy is a, 
you know, kitten, a kitty cat for the faith. You know, Timothy was vacillating. He was struggling. He was doubting. He was uh, wavering. He was a young man, you know, kind of in over his head. There was uh, a twofold pressure for him. There was persecution from, from the outside. Nero had started persecuting Christians, and he was decimating the church. But what was more difficult was there was defection from within. There was false teaching, false Christians. There was uh, false believers who were attacking him from within. So he was hard-pressed on every side. So Timothy was, as a young, as understandably a young man, he was wavering, was vacillating. And out of weakness, he was considering abandoning his post. Not leaving Christ, but leaving the ministry. So it is within this backdrop that Paul writes this letter to Timothy. And here we find ourselves in chapter 3. And in the first part of chapter 3, Paul uses some strong adjectives to describe these false teachers. I mean, they're, man, you know, Paul's not pulling any punches. You know, actually, Paul's boxing without gloves on. I mean, the words he uses are proud, arrogant, abusive, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, swollen with conceit, having an appearance of godliness without power. Now, I, 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 my opinion, I believe that <coughs> Paul has special familiarity with this list uh, because uh, these adjectives describe Paul before he was saved. This is who Paul was before grace, through, grace broke through through his hardened heart. This is exactly what Paul was. He was uh, zealous for the law of God. And he was swollen with conceit. He was swollen with pride because of his religious achievements. Because of things he didn't do because he was a faithful Jew. And he was swollen with conceit because of the things that he did for God. And we see Saul for the first time in Acts 7 with the martyrdom of Stephen. Where they were gnashing their teeth at Stephen because he was preaching the gospel of Christ. And Saul was the one, the conspirator behind the scenes who made all this happen. He entrapped Stephen. He set the scene. He got everyone in place. And they murdered Stephen. They stoned him to death. And Stephen, as he was dying, we we talked about this last week, his prayer was, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He was blessing them. And yet, even after they, after he died, there was no, uh, you know, pity or compassion. No sense of, uh, remorse in Saul's heart. Saul was not satisfied. Saul was not content with the death of just one man. With that persecution, there was a diaspora of Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Christians spread throughout the region, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the world. So Saul was, I want to go after them. I'm not happy that Christians have left Jerusalem. I want to find out that every hole and crevice that they've hidden themselves, and I want to go with the authority, with the high priest, and arrest them, imprison them, indict them, and some martyr them. So this is, this is Saul. It was, uh, he had this 
form of godliness without power. From outward perspective, he was a godly man, praying three times a day, fasting consistently. I mean, he had memorized great portions of the Old Testament. His life was one of virtue and and morality and, and faithfulness. And yet, there was no power because he had no gospel and his heart was raging with with anger and, and pride and judgmentalism. That was Paul. That's where God met Paul and grace broke through. In Acts 9, God opened his eyes. God melted his heart. God broke Paul's heart. Not with a hammer, but with the cross. Not with force, but with love. And with eyes open for the first time, Paul saw, you know, Scubalon, which is like trash with his waste. All his religious accomplishments were nothing. He saw what was motivating him. It was all boasting. It was all bragging. It was all ego. It was all shame and fear and guilt. It was propelling him to do all these things. And it was all around him. It was selfishness. So he saw how bankrupt his religious achievements were. At the same time, he saw the cross. He saw and experienced the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And he was forever changed. Uh, if you want to understand the heart of Paul, you got to understand this one passage of scripture, 1 Timothy 1. You want to turn there, 15 through 17. You know, read it this week, First Timothy 1, 15-17, Paul says, uh, Saying is trustworthy and true, worthy of acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief, of which I am the foremost, which I am the greatest. Saul, Paul would have never said that before the cross. He should have said, you know, yeah, God saves sinners, and there's sinners over there, and I'm the most righteous. He says, I am the worst sinner. And he says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So through Paul, God was displaying his perfect patience. So that Paul can be saved, chief of sinners, there's hope for us, our family members, our friends, strangers who are lost without the gospel. And also, God used Paul as an example as what happens to a man. And the gospel of grace breaks through to his heart. Example of a man when grace grips his heart. So that's our study for this day, for this morning. Second Timothy 3, 10 through 14, we see Three marks of a man whose heart is gripped by the gospel. Three marks of a man whose heart is transformed by the gospel of free grace. First is that that man is worthy of imitation. Second is that that man is, that man's life is marked by suffering. And third is that that man's call to others is to continue in the gospel. That man's call to others is to continue in the gospel. So let's look at the first one. 
Such a man is worthy of imitation. Verse 10. We see you, however, other translations, but you. Paul is contrasting these false teachers. He says, Timothy, singular, you, you are to be different. You are different. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. He lists nine things. Nine traits that Timothy followed. And that word followed in the Greek is a specific, unique word. And uh, if I was better at Greek, I'd attempt to you know, say it to you right now. But it has too many syllables, right? It's a very unique word for follow. It is not just following someone around like, casually. It is a special word that denotes following as an apprentice, as a disciple, as a learner. It's like a medical resident who follows a doctor around. Right? Why? Because he wants to learn. He's observing so that he might make that knowledge of the doctor, the seasoned, experienced doctor, the skills of a doctor, and make it his own. That's the word used here. So Timothy followed Paul for decades. And he followed and observed with the intention of making it his own in nine specific areas of ministry and life. Uh, we see a little side note, a point here worthy of mentioning, where Christian life and ministry is more caught than taught. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for books. Christian books are great. My, my, my house is filled with Christian books. I'm all for sermons. I listen to sermons online all the time. Right? But Christian life and ministry is intended to be transferred life on life. That's why Jesus chose 12 to be with him. That is why Paul poured out his life to Timothy and Titus. That's why we have the church. That is why just listening to sermons online or reading books is not enough. We have to be present. We have to uh, attend. We have to be available. Because of so much of Christian life is is caught via relationships, through life on life. And we see that evidence here. Paul lists nine things that Timothy followed. We're going to just zero in on the first three with our time that we have together. First is uh, my teaching. You have observed, heard, and embraced my teaching. Now, what was Paul's teaching? What phrase, what can sum up Paul's didaskalia, his doctrine? It is that radical teaching that we have a righteous standing before a thrice holy God through faith alone. It is that earth-shattering idea that we cannot be accepted by God by our works. We cannot please God. We cannot be approved by God by meeting some list of things to do and a list of things not to do. In fact, being approved by God through works is futile. It's a dead end. It only ends in disaster and condemnation. It is, in a word, impossible. Paul's 
singular message is righteousness before God through faith alone. That was his message. Wherever he went, that was the message he declared. That was the power of God that saved him. And he was unashamed to proclaim that power so that it might save others. We can go to many places in Paul's writings where he articulates this truth. Uh, but let's turn to uh, Romans 3, 21. And just read and, and let Paul speak here. Let's listen to this dear apostle preach his teaching, preach his message, and let's just listen to him. uncontaminated by anyone else. Let him speak his message. Let us take it to heart. Let us observe it and let us follow it and let us embrace it. Romans 3.21 and we'll read all the way to Romans 4.7 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, Jews or Gentiles. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that God, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How awesome is that? Then what becomes of our boasting? If it's by grace through faith, what is our, where is our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Everyone. Do we then overthrow this law, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, quoting Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Not to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So the man who trusts God instead of his works is blessed because all his sins are forgiven. 
This was uh, Paul's teaching. This was Paul's gospel. This was Paul's message. And he contrasts this with these evil men, these imposters, because their message is one of works. Their message is one of being approved by God, pleasing God, being accepted by God, by being good and avoiding evil. For them, it was circumcision. To be made right with God, you need to be circumcised. Paul uses strong words. He says in Philippians 3, he calls them dogs. In Galatians 3, he says, I wish for them to emasculate themselves. If they believe in circumcision, right, right standing by God through works, they should emasculate themselves and settle the matter once for all. He was uh, strong in his defense of his singular teaching. They preach religion. They preach works. What Paul preached was the gospel of free grace. Timothy followed this. He heard it. He believed it. He became convinced of it. Secondly, second thing that Paul, that Timothy observed and embraced was Paul says, my life. My life. Now, uh, Paul's critics said, this teaching of free grace is going to produce nothing but a sinful life. Right? It's going to produce nothing but an immoral, licentious life. Paul, you preach free grace, you Paul, preach freedom, you believe this. And their message was not where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Their message was where grace abounds, sin will superabound. They're saying, you wait. You look at Paul's life. He's going to shipwreck his life because he believes in grace. And everyone that believes this is under a curse, and they will be filled with immorality. They'll be filled with sins and all kinds of perversion because... That's what freedom will produce. Ensure a sinful, if not a mediocre life. And Paul says to Timothy, you know my life. You've been with me. You know my conduct. You know my life. And it is exactly the opposite of what the critics predicted. Where gospel produced life. When, When gospel... When, when legalism rings in a man, you know, when, when, when outward behavior, when one's life is motivated by, by fear or pride or shame, guilt or ego, that change is only temporary. That change is fleeting. That change is situational. And that change is only external. It has no effect on the heart. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you've seen this with your own, your own eyes. You've seen people in your campus ministry who are leaders in the campus ministry who are on fire for Christ. few years, months, weeks, days after graduation, they're not walking with Christ. They're removed from that situation. They're removed from that peer pressure or pastor pressure. And their heart right, overwhelms them. And they're no longer walk, walk, walking with Christ. We've seen this in our own church. Right? If your behavior, 
is produced by work, by, by pride or fear or ego. It's only temporary. It's only situational. And in fact, God's commands becomes a burden. And what it fuels is uh, bitterness, resentment, and anger in your heart. Because your heart wants something else. And you are doing certain things because, because of the pastor or your, or your church or because uh, you're, you're a leader now. You know, you're, in, you're a ministry leader or you're a, you're a care group leader or you're a pastor. So you have to act a certain way. It's temporary, situational, it is fleeting. Jonathan Edwards confronted this in, his, in the Great Awakening. Uh, people were understanding the gospel and being transformed by the gospel. And a swarm of counterfeit Christians entered the ranks. And they imitated all the outward forms, but grace didn't break through. And he talked about how we bend the will out of fear or pride. We do this to our children. We do this to our, our friends. We do this to ourselves. We try to force ourselves to do certain things out of pride or our fear, out of ego. We try to change our our decisions, manipulating our hearts rather than the gospel. I mean, we uh, we do this with our kids. We 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 we, uh, raise them. We manipulate them using fear or pride. We do this with our kids. Uh, You know, our children sometimes don't eat vegetables. So I tell I tell Ethan, Ethan, you eat your broccoli, you'll be like Batman, right? You have muscles like Batman. You can be like our governor, right? If you eat your broccoli, right? And which is like manipulation, which is a lie, right? He's Asian. He's not gonna be like Arnold, right? He's gonna be a five foot three skinny guy. It's just okay, but right. <laughs> Last year, I'll, I I try to have the audio team not allow. Ethan to listen to this when he after he grows up, but like last year, you know, we were sitting on the kitchen table, a dinner table, and a fly came in, and Ethan was freaking out. He was all scared of a fly. I'm like, what's going on here? Like, you know, like our daughters are afraid of spiders. I understand. My wife's afraid of spiders. I come home, there's all these cubs upside down all over our living room, and what's going on? But at first, I mean, now I know what's going on. There's spiders all in our room. My job. But boy, and a fly. Like Ethan, what's wrong with you? You're a you're a, you're a boy. You don't be a, you're afraid of flies. And he was he couldn't get a hold of himself. I said, Ethan, are you a girl? Don't be like a girl. Be brave. It's a fly. And he couldn't get it together. Ethan, I'm gonna put a dress on you. I'm gonna treat you like a girl if you don't get get, get together. And it's not the proud, my proudest moment as a as a father, <laughs> right? He couldn't get it together, so I put a dress on him. <laughs> I'm gonna treat you like a girl because you're acting like. And he was happy. He's like, hey. <laughs> All right. We do this. You know, my parents told me, if I don't behave, the cops are going to come and take me away. Right? Just passing down the empty way of life, passed down to me and my parents. All right. This is what we do to others. This is what many churches do. But you know what? It's what we do to ourselves. Right. We, we use fear or pride. And I'm better than this. How can I lie? I, lying is those evil non-Christians. That's what they do. How can I be so lazy? I, I need to you just fear. If, if I'm lazy, my whole life's going to come crashing down. and I'll be able to pay my bills and I'll, I'll become homeless. I need to get my act together. Right? 
those tactics, potent at that moment, last only about a brief, short time. It's fleeting, it's temporal, it's situational. Only the gospel, only God's grace, only God's love produces true change. Heart change. Change in the inner man. Where your spiritual attitudes change. So Paul's conduct was motivated by the gospel. So there was true change because he believed in his teaching. He says there in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-15, Christ's love compels me. What compels him for his life and ministry is love of Christ. And love of Christ is so powerful, it mortifies that monster within all of us, that monster called self-centeredness, the monster called selfishness, self-love and self-worship. For all of us, anything happens, our first thought is, how is it going to affect me? Anything happens in your Family happen, you know, my wife gets sick. My thought is, how's it going to affect me? Right? Oh, man, I have to take care of her now. Oh, man, I got to do the dishes. Oh, you know, I have to take care of the kids. That's in all of us. Right? Religion, legalism, irreligion has no power for the heart. Paul says, Christ's love compels me. For he died for all so that I should no longer live for myself, but live for others whom Christ loves. Only gospel grace breaks through and produces this kind of life. You know, that's, that's why my biggest problem in my life is to really believe that God loves me. That's my biggest weakness. To truly understand, accept, and believe that God loves me through Christ. That's the answer for my anger a lack of patience, bitterness, resentment, lack of forgiveness. That's the issue. It's not more time management. It's not waking up early, you know, sleeping earlier and waking up earlier. It's not more, you know, more, more will, willpower. No, it's to trust and believe in God's love for me. Believe that changes the head, head to your heart, to your hands. Paul's life was truly transformed by the gospel. And Timothy followed it. The third is, and this is great, the my aim in life. My aim in life. You know, Paul, before grace broke through to his heart, his aim in life was to uphold the law of God, to protect Judaism, defend the honor of God's name. In Acts 9, grace breaks through his heart. It just melts his heart and his aim in life is changed. His life becomes all about Jesus Christ. His life becomes about the gospel. Because of what God has done for him through Jesus. Because of Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross on his behalf, it becomes his life. The latter part of his life in the end of the book of Acts, in Acts 20, 24, with the elders at Ephesus. This is what Paul says to them. They're, they're crying. They're weeping. They're saying, don't leave us. You know, Paul said, I'm never going to see you again because my end is near. And they're begging him to stay. And he says, I do not account my life of any value, 
nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. What is that? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He doesn't care about his life. His life is nothing. Only thing that matters to him, mattered to him, was the gospel of God's grace. In the very next chapter, in Acts 21, he meets with other brothers, Christians in Tyre, and they're begging him, and there's a prophet, and he prophesies what will happen to Paul when he goes to Jerusalem. They, they get a leather a belt and tie their hands, say, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you, and they're going to kill you. So they beg Paul to not go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul's an example of what happens to everyone whose heart has been melted by the gospel of God's grace. Paul's an example of what happens to anyone when gospel breaks through to their hearts where their teaching becomes the gospel, their life is gospel-fueled, so it's not temporal, fleeting, situational. Right? It's genuine heart change. And when grace breaks through, Jesus becomes everything. Changes everything. It becomes the aim of that person's life. See, with legalism, the gospel or Jesus is something you add to your life. Now, this is my pursuit, this is my aspirations, my dreams, my hopes, my agenda in life. And I'll add Jesus. Right? And I'll give him some good works. I'll go to church. I'll do ministry. But I manage him and I'm controlling my life. When grace breaks through, God's love breaks through, and you receive and believe the promise of God's forgiveness, God's mercy, Jesus becomes your life, becomes your purpose, your, your life aim. Um, you know, I, a sister shared this online on Facebook, and I, 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 you know, this is my favorite way of sermon prep. Just go on Facebook and get quotes and sermon illustrations from other people's Facebook posts. So keep it up. It's really helping me <laughs> cut my time in sermon prep. So she shared this online on her Facebook, so I guess I can share this with all of you here. We're all her friends, right? <laughs> um, This is what she wrote. I recently listened to a sermon by Tim Keller entitled Christ Our Life based on Colossians 3, 1 through 14. There is this one section I repeated about five times because it was so good for my heart. In it, Keller quotes a woman who used to be in multiple abusive relationships before becoming a Christian. Here is a transcript. The woman said, It's very practical. When I go to church, when I'm in worship, when what Jesus did for me is so real and so wonderful, in my heart, I think of the men in my life. And I say, you know, I speak to them. And I say this, I'm glad to know you. And I certainly wouldn't mind being married. But you are not my life. Christ is my life. I'm done making anything else my life. You're a good thing, but you're not an ultimate thing. I would love to have a husband, but if I don't, I've got Jesus, and I set my mind on things above. You can't give me any of the things that Jesus has given me. See, I don't want to look to men or to a career. 
A career can't die for me. If I live for a career and fail, it'll beat me up all my life for having been a failure. But if I fail Jesus, well, he died for me and I'm forgiven. Keller says, see, she realized something. Jesus is the only Savior who, if you get him, he'll satisfy you. And if you fail him, and you will fail him, he still loves you, and he died for you. See, whatever is the ultimate thing in your life, whatever you boast about, whatever is your aim in life, you will fail in that pursuit. And that aim will fail you, will disappoint you. But not Jesus. Jesus is the only one where the more we fail him, he loves us more because we are depending upon him. We are trusting in him and not on our accomplishments. That is what happens when grace breaks through. Well, to close our time, got a question for you. If you had uh, an apprentice, maybe it's your friend, right? Maybe it's your son or daughter, right? Maybe it's your spouse. And they look to your teaching, your life, and your aim in life. What would it be? Would it be, would your teaching be the gospel of Christ? Or you're a self-made person, right? You rely on yourself. You don't depend on anyone else. And you boast on what you have done. And you condemn others for others their failures. Would that be your teaching or would it be the gospel of Christ? If they looked at your life, would they see all these idols that you are using to get you to do things in life? Would they see all these conflicting motivations you're taking to cope with life? Or would they see grace broke through the gospel of God is is working you and compelling you to willing to act for every good work? And if they were to see your aim in life, what would they see? Would they see your aim something other than Christ? That's really your heart passion. That's really your heart aspiration. And you just kind of sprinkle Jesus on top as a condiment. Or would it be Christ? Now, all of us fall short here. No one of us meets the standard. We all fall short. What is our response in light of this? Will it be, I'm going to make the gospel my teaching with all my effort? I'm going to live the gospel life. Even if it kills me, I'm going to, starting you know, lunch today, I'm going to make you know, gospel life. And I'm going to force Jesus to be my aim. No. Right. Our response is, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. God, may your grace break through. God, my biggest problem is, I don't believe you love me. I don't trust in your grace. I still want control over my life. I still believe in myself. I believe 
help me in my unbelief. These are all the fruits of the gospel. May, may God grant us grace to receive his grace, to believe it and to rest in it and watch him do the work. With your pen in your hands, Bible's open. If you just bow your heads and close in prayer. And uh, let's do something a little different. Let's pray for the person to your left and your right. Let's do a, a selfless prayer. Let's ask God if you do a, a gracious work of sovereign grace in their lives where grace will break through. Their eyes will be open to see what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, what God has prepared for those who love him. The grace of the cross and the love of God would break through their uh, stubborn, hard, legalistic hearts. They would, they would receive um, God's love and kindness. Lord, we are such uh, prideful monsters where we see Paul's life and we want to, on our own strength, imitate and follow after him, forgetting the power behind his life, what made his life possible. And it wasn't Paul, it wasn't his discipline or will or strength. It was that he was strengthened by the grace that was in Christ Jesus. That is in Christ Jesus. And that is uh, our hope. That is the answer for us. And yet we'd rather work and we'd rather trust in ourselves and we'd rather be in control rather than receive your truth, your gospel. Lord, we pray and we ask you for We cannot do it to ourselves. We pray that you would help us in our unbelief and that grace will break through. That your the side of the cross will melt our hearts and would cut to our very being so that our teaching, our lives, and our aim in life would be Jesus and only Jesus. Thank you for this dear apostle. May we uh, follow him as he follows your son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray.